the two non-renewable resources we have in our life that technology can rob us of are our time and our attention. You can and you need to tame technology so that you're not a slave to the screen. Hi, I'm Julie Hyde and I'm passionate about inspiring leaders to step up and lead and be powerful role models for those around them. My guests are all doing just that and I ask them to share how they are making it count and how they have created their success. I can't wait to share their amazing stories with you. Dr. Christy Goodwin is one of Australia's leading digital wellbeing and performance expert. She's the author of Raising Your Child in a Digital World, a speaker, media commentator, and digital wellbeing researcher who doesn't suggest that we ban the iPhone. Now, this has got to be one of my most favorite chats and one that is so incredibly timely. Christy and I talk about how technology, something that was designed to make us more productive and efficient, is something that's making us so much more unproductive and incredibly distracted. We talk about nomophobia and what that is. We chat about the world of hybrid and how it's so important to really establish positive habits to ensure the digital well-being of our people. And Dr. Christie shares hacks that we can implement immediately to help us break some of our bad habits. Now, you're going to need a pen and paper for this one. Dr. Christy generously shares her knowledge, and I know you're going to get lots and lots of value from this. Enjoy. Christy, welcome to the podcast. It is great to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to chat to you today about all things digital well-being and also I love the concept of taming the digital beast. (laughs) So (laughs) throughout our chat, I'd love people to really reflect on what you're sharing and really thinking about if they are in control of their technology or if it's in control of them. So um, looking forward to your words of wisdom. So if if I start at the beginning in terms of well, where you started to become the thought leader in the digital uh, well-being and neuroproductivity space, what was the catalyst for you actually getting into this space? So it was really a series of serendipitous events. I wished I had a clear career trajectory mapped out, but it wasn't the case. Um, I had been a teacher and then an academic studying the impact that technology was having on children and adolescents and their developing brains and bodies. Um, And then I had been asked by Apple to go and speak at a conference in Singapore. And I did that for two nights um, and then flew back to Sydney. And when I arrived at Sydney Airport, I did what many of us do at an airport um, baggage terminal and I pulled out my phone and I saw that that awful red icon declaring that I had 77 unread emails. And I thought when I get in the taxi, I'll triage my inbox and I'll start afresh once I walk in the door at home. And I got in the taxi and I fell asleep. Um, So my plan to triage my inbox didn't go accordingly. And when I got home, I had at the time um, two two children and my uh, middle son at the time hadn't been away from me. So two nights away meant that he needed to top up on some extra mummy cuddles. 
So I had ambitiously scheduled a conference call, this is pre-Zoom, but a conference call with a colleague during his expected nap time. So I thought I better open the lid on my laptop and just send an email to cancel that conference call because it's not going to take place when Billy needs some extra cuddles. And I opened the lid on my laptop and the 77, you know, that red bubble that declares Mm -hmm. how many unread emails you had, had blown out to I think it was 148, something around that number. And I went down the digital rabbit hole. Instead of sending just that one email like I'd intended to, I Mm. went down the digital vortex, and I'm sure this happens to lots of us, and I started trying to triage that avalanche of emails that had built up. And in the space of just a couple of minutes whilst I was doing that, I became so digitally distracted that I wasn't watching Billy as he was climbing on the adjacent lounge. And Billy fell from the top of the lounge onto the floor below him, split his face open, requiring urgent hospitalisation. And as somebody who studies technology and the impact that it has on kids and, and teens, you would think that an adult with, you know, fairly well-established brain architecture wouldn't succumb to digital distractions, but I did. Mm. And it was this moment in time that really acted as the catalyst for me to start saying, look, for so long we've obsessed and focused on kids and teenagers and worried about their screen time. But have we ever stopped to examine our digital habits and behaviours as adults? You know, I think if we're really honest, we are just as distracted and dependent and disconnected because of technology. So it was that moment in time where I really started to look at how technology is impacting all of us. You know, I think, Mm -hmm. Julie, if we're really honest, we're a slave to the screen. You know, we salivate like Pavlov's dogs every time we get an alert or a notification. We're in our Zoom or our Teams meetings and we're checking our inboxes or replying to messages on Teams or Slack. And so this is having a huge impact on both our well-being, mm. um, but also on our productivity. You know, the fact that we cannot get deep focused work done without a ping or an alert or a notification or something vibrating means that it really can put a dent in our productivity. So unfortunately, it was my failing um, that really made me stop and look at our digital habits as adults. Yeah, and look, my God, you're not alone in terms of distraction and going into it with the intention of just do one thing and then something catches your attention. It's like all of a sudden that like two minutes has turned into two hours. It's just amazing how much time it sucks up unknowingly. And it it is actually because, I mean, part of it is because the technology has been designed for our work and our leisure technologies have been designed to tap into one of our most fundamental psychological needs as humans, and that is the need for connection. We're hardwired to be part of a tribe. So when I see a notification or when I see a, a bubble declaring that I've got 15 unread emails, I will reciprocate. When my boss is emailing me at 11 p.m. at night, and I know I don't have to reply, but I feel socially obligated to reply because we have that hard wiring to be part of a tribe. The other thing that's happening that's, again, not really our fault is that technology causes us to enter something called the state of insufficiency. The online world is like a bottomless bowl. There's no stopping cues. You never really authentically get to inbox zero. And if you do, it doesn't last very long. And so there's never a sense of being done or complete. We can always open another browser. We can refresh social media. There's another episode to watch on Netflix or Stan. Our inboxes are always bulging. So we never have a sense of being done. And that as a human is really difficult because we have no line of demarcation between being complete and incomplete. 
So the technology is really working against the way our brain was designed to operate. That makes so much sense when you say the sense of insufficiency because I know people stress about not having that clear inbox and they stress about clearing their messages and things like that, like it's real. And it's interesting what you say about Netflix because it's like they're tapping into that in the want for you to watch that next episode. I'm just thinking about the alerts that come through as someone who takes notice of these things. Clearly, it's designed for me to do that. Yeah, and even just something as simple as the autoplay feature. You know, one Netflix episode goes to the next. If you've got screen ages, i.e. kids on screens, um, the autoplay feature on YouTube and their streaming services means that Again, they're enticed into going down this digital vortex. And we know the, the part of our brain, our prefrontal cortex, it's the part of our brain that helps us regulate our behaviour. Whenever we're doing anything pleasurable, and for most of us, scrolling social media, even if it's triaging our, our Slack channel or our Teams channel where you know we're seeing a reduction from that 77 down to 40, it's rewarding. And so our brain gives us little squirts of the, dop- of the neurotransmitted dopamine, which makes us feel good. The problem is when we're getting hurt squirts of dopamine, not only does it make us want to keep doing that behavior because we're craving that, that sense of satisfaction, but the problem with dopamine is that overrides, it floods our prefrontal cortex. So the part of our brain that would normally say that is an ineffective use of your time, stop scrolling social media, turn off Netflix, get out of your inbox and go back to your report or your proposal, that part of our brain is, pardon the pun, offline. It's not working because the dopamine is overriding that part that would regulate our behaviour. So there's so many fascinating things that are working against us that mean that we do go down that digital rabbit hole so very easily. Gosh, that is just so scary. And what's even more scary is that people have studied this so carefully to be incredibly targeted with technology, haven't they? It's like they absolutely know how the brain functions and what we respond to. That's what I find really scary in terms of ads and things that are catching our attention. In the back room of all the social media platforms, besides computer programmers and software engineers, were neuroscientists and psychologists working to make these platforms, even our work platforms, as captivating and alluring as possible. Um, Tristan Harris, who some people may have seen on The Social Dilemma, he used to be a design ethicist for Google, used to be. He came out and and was a bit of a whistleblower talking about some of the persuasive design techniques that companies deploy. And a simple technique, the fact that your notification bubble is red and has a metric in it, red is a psychological trigger for urgency, importance, danger. Would you feel compelled to check your messages if it was baby pink or sky blue or a nice apple green? Mm. Possibly not. The fact that there's a number telling you how many, you know, unread messages or notifications you've got, again, is a very persuasive technique that gets you into to checking it and trying to triage it. So there's really sneaky mechanics, again, working against us and our better judgment. So can you share with us some ways that our digital habits are impacting on our mental health and well-being overall? 
Yeah, and they are. Our, our digital behaviours are really having an adverse impact on our mental health, but perhaps not in the direct way that we think. A lot of people are wanting to find research evidence that says a particular platform, particularly social media platforms, mm. have a really negative impact on our mental health. And we don't actually have evidence that proves causation. What we've got evidence is that definitely shows us there's a correlation. So those people that tend to spend more time on particular platforms tend to have more negative um, mental health outcomes. But we don't yet know which way the directional arrow points. Is it that, that people with existing mental health issues gravitate more towards the online world as a coping mechanism, as a form of diversional therapy? Or is it the other way around where the online world is causing or perhaps even exacerbating the mental health? And what I think is happening and what the research is slowly beginning to suggest is the case is that it's what our digital habits are displacing that's having a negative impact on our mental health. And the three big things, I think, are our sleep, blue light exposure and just the amount of time we're spending is obviously displacing our sleep and having a huge impact on the quality of our sleep. Mm. And we know not getting good quality or quantity of sleep is very, very closely associated with poor mental health. The other thing that our sedentary lifestyle is displacing is physical movement. We are nowhere near as physically active. I know lots of people during lockdown who were wearing their fitness trackers were horrified to see that their step count had radically um, reduced during lockdown periods. And when we move, our body, body makes, a, or our brain, I should say, makes a whole lot of happy hormones. We make dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine and a whole lot of other happy neurotransmitters. So we're not sleeping enough and our screen habits are sabotaging that. We're not moving enough. And the third thing that I really think technology is displacing that's impacting our mental health is that this has become the digital intruder. It's impacting our relationships. It's impacting our relationships with significant others in our life. Um, you know, there's research on fubbing phone snubbing and it tells us that even if we've got our phone with us and it's on silent, if it's in our line of sight, it will change the quality and the quantity of our interactions with people. It is literally changing how we socialise and interact. So they're the three big things. I think our sleep, our movement and our connection is being completely altered by this very, very powerful technology that we carry with us most of the day. The sleep, I certainly understand. I know there's lots of stats around well, particularly around the lack of sleep that Aussies are getting now, like there's a really high percentage, and I can't remember the exact percentage, of the number of people who um, are really sleep deprived and yes. just can't get that quality of sleep. Yeah, Murdoch University found recently um, that one in um, five, so 20% of Australians are being woken up during the night at least once during the week because their digital device is sending them an alert or a notification. And so we know not getting completed sleep cycles. So say you get a, an alert or notification on your phone and you're in between stages three and four of your sleep. Even if you don't open it, even if you resist it, the fact that you have been woken up means that when you fall back asleep, you have to start your sleep cycle at the very beginning. You don't pick up where you were and, and keep going into your latter stages of sleep. Mm. And we know that it's those final stages of sleep, our deep and REM sleep cycles, that are really, really important for memory consolidation. That's when our, our brains basically do a bit of a, a, a backup of all the important information. Yeah. Many of us are not getting either to that stage of sleep because of digital devices being in our bedrooms and waking us up or 
if we've been on our devices in the 60 minutes before we go to sleep, our body doesn't make enough melatonin. And when we don't make enough melatonin, we often don't get into those deep stages of sleep, those those latter stages for long enough periods. Mm. So the quality of our sleep is being impacted. So this is so complex. But the solutions are really simple. That's the irony yes. of the situation. I know, and we're going to get to that because I love that. I've got, I'm so passionate about sleep. So at a certain part of the night, my my phone goes on do not disturb like silence. So there's no notifications. So you can't get me at all. No <laughs> notification. Even if anyone rang during the night, it's like no way, thanks. But I find it interesting also that intruder, the digital intruder, and I see that in so too many business settings where people go into meetings and bring their phone but when if, even if they're going to have a critical conversation it's like yeah. how's the phone going to help you yeah and it really is a deterrent for interaction you know just its presence so being in the line of sight so even as simple as popping it in your handbag putting it in your briefcase yes. putting it in a drawer leaving it in your office when you go to the boardroom for a discussion makes a really powerful impact and often I share a statistic this came from the University of Texas and it's been very well um, you know very well substantiated that when you are even working so you're working at your laptop and you want to be really focused many of us and I hope many of us do this but we should ideally turn our phone to do not disturb mode when we want to get the data analysis done when we want to do a proposal when we want to do what Cal Newport calls deep thinking or deep work Mm. when we do that even if our phone is on do not disturb mode and it is face down but it is in with still in your line of sight you have a 10 percent decrement in your performance you you you, you're you're, um, less effective by 10 percent just by having it in close proximity because your brain is constantly scanning and processing all the sensory cues that it can see and seeing that digital appendage, seeing your phone is enough to really have that much of a negative impact on your performance. Wow. That is just ridiculous. So that now reinforces my little strategy of when I need to focus, I have to put it downstairs. <laughs> yes. That's brilliant. And they're really important cues. Again, I often say the basics work if you work the basics and popping it in another drawer, popping it where you can't see it really has a profound um, impact. Putting it on do not disturb mode, not for the whole day, but when you need to get your focused work done. And with all platforms now, you can set up exceptions to the rules. So Mm -hmm. if you're caring for elderly parents, if you've got young kids and you need to be contactable in some form in a, in a case of a legitimate emergency, there are rules and parameters that can, you can set up so that people can still get through those digital you know, borders and boundaries that you create even when there are extenuating circumstances. But I think many of us don't put those strategies in place and we're, you know, spending our whole day going from emails to WhatsApp to social media notifications to our team messages and getting frustrated because we can't get any deep focused work done. And now it's time for a quick break. To have a successful business or career, you need to lead it and lead it well which is why investing into your leadership is so important. If you are someone who wants to level up, play a bigger game and supercharge your results, then join Julie on her seven-week Role Model Effect program. It is a laser-focused program designed to give you clarity and confidence in your leadership to enable you to lead with influence as we move forward in our uncertain world. It will magnify your self-awareness and confidence, amplify your growth and intensify your influence as a leader. If you are curious to know more, visit juliehyde.com.au or contact her directly to find out more. 
Now, does that feed into this thing called nomophobia, which I'd love you, I've not heard of that before, but I'd love you to um, share with our listeners <laughs> what that is. And I bet people are going to resonate with this pretty strongly. Yeah, it's a pretty common condition. Um, nomophobia is a colloquial term we use to describe the fear of not having your phone in close proximity. So unfortunately, research tells us that um, 90% of adults are no longer more than one metre proximity away from their phone for most of their waking and sleeping hours now. We are literally tethered to technology. It's usually about one metre away from us. Julie, this is where it gets awkward. Um, often in presentations I say, uh, research tells us that about 47% of us have a condition called toilet tweeting. We are using our digital devices in the bathroom. That's how connected we are. Digital appendages. Conjures up all sorts of visions. That is where my mind went when you said one metre. I'm like, okay, sorry, does yeah. that mean? <laughs> it does. It does. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. It's just knowing these things and being really conscious of it in terms of the habits that we're creating around this. And, of course, once we know, we can change it. I found it interesting to read that in the hybrid world of work, which is, you know, really where work is is right now, in particular, particularly when we're in lockdown, that high productivity is masking exhaustion and you know, because we're sitting in front of our computers pretty much all day, every day, absolutely supported by the numerous conversations that I'm having with employees and employers about this in that fatigue is a massive problem, if not the top problem that leaders are having in the workplace for them and their employees. Like they're, they're just so tired. We've had our nose to the grind for the last, you know, at least 18 months. Um, in front of these uh, computers. So what do you think employers should be doing to support their employees in the digital wellbeing space? Look, I'd corroborate exactly what you're hearing anecdotally too, Julie, and that is mm. that dig I call it digital depletion or digital burnout um, yep. or just general fatigue and burnout are very real. And the reason I hone in on digital fatigue and burnout is that the research is corroborating um, this. It is a real threat to our productivity. Yes, we have seen improved and increased output, um, but it has been the at the expense of our health, well-being, and I think our overall performance. Mm. And I think there's two things that we need organisations to do, um, given that hybrid work looks like it's here to stay in some capacity. Um, first and foremost, I think we need organisations to be helping um, employees develop healthy hybrid habits. Um, and so this is about establishing best practice in a hybrid context. And again, through no fault of anybody's, most of us in, in March 2020 went home one day with our laptop under our arm, um, not knowing that we were going to suddenly embrace radical changes to everything about our workday. So I think we really need to upskill um, employees and teams and leaders on what healthy hybrid habits really look like. You know, simple practices. Can we shorten virtual meetings? Microsoft have done some really fascinating studies during the lockdown period and have actually put some of their employees in EEG machines and actually watched their brain activity and they can clearly show that fatigue sets in in video calls around 30 to 40 minutes. 
So can we use this knowledge to shorten our virtual meetings? Um, can we start to revert to asynchronous forms of communication? So could we work on a, a live document that we could access at a time that suits us rather than trying to have another virtual meeting or another phone call? Mm. So can we start to shift some of our habits? Can we help um, employees understand the costs of what happens when we are distracted? I do some experiments with with um, employees when I run some sessions with them and we actually do some multitasking experiments. And it is very clear for people to recognise what starts to happen when we try and split our attention. Yet most of us are spending our day splitting our attention um, like that. Can we start to promote and share digital disconnection? Um, so really we've got to try and map our knowledge of the brain and how it works in this hybrid digital space um, and share that knowledge with our employees. So I think that's step one, upskilling mm. our employees to adopt these healthy hybrid habits. The second one, and I think this is critical at the moment, is that we need organisations, both big and small, to articulate their digital guardrails. And what I mean by this is I don't like the word policy <laughs> because this has to be at some guiding principles about how technology is used in a hybrid space. So mm. clearly delineating what, what are the rules, what are what's the lay of the land, what are the digital parameters and practices that we'll put in place so that people can digitally disconnect, so that people aren't sending emails at 1am in the morning and expecting a response. People aren't adding people to another team's channel and expecting them to contribute. Um, people know what an acceptable email response rate is. People know how they go about elevating critical tasks that require urgent action without somebody checking 16, you know, digital tools, if that makes sense. So mm. it's, I think those two things combined, upskilling employees and employers and leaders about how we work best in a hybrid capacity. And second of all, having the, the guiding principles, the policies, for want of a better word, but some actual concrete um, articulation of how we're going to use these technologies. Because at the moment, work, you know, we're living where we work. We have moved into yeah. the office. And so people aren't unplugging and switching off, and that's having huge impacts on well-being and productivity. Mm, absolutely they're awesome tips and this is something that you very much work with organizations and leaders with isn't it so you run sessions to enable people to understand how to do that really effectively yeah absolutely so running sessions on how the brain works in an online space mm. um, and also working collaboratively with teams to establish their digital guardrails I sometimes refer to them as managing our tech expectations so how do we know what? where I'm meant to be how frequently I'm meant to respond and yeah. a simple exercise I often do with corporate teams was to saying to them on a piece on a post-it note when we we're back doing this in, in an, an office I want everybody to write down how long you expect a, a an interview internal email for a response rate. So you send something to a colleague, what's an acceptable email response rate? It varies from three minutes to three hours to three days. We have huge variation. We've never, ever actually articulated what the parameters and principles and best practices are. So work, working teams through this in a hybrid capacity, I think is really important. Um, it also stops teams recognising in many instances when we do a sort of a digital audit, um, or I call it a tech pulse check we often identify people are, are replicating and there's so much redundant use of technology mm. but because we haven't had the time to stop and pause we've just sort of been swept up we keep going with it yeah interesting and I would 
think that it's very important for the leaders to role model those expectations. So they've really got to be walking their talk in that space. So critical. That's where yeah. it falls down. We we often go in. Um, so we do some. I do some work with what we call cultural embedding. So mm-hmm. what we found when with some of the organisations that were rolling out their their best hybrid work practices was that many of the team wanted to adopt these practices, but they were the ones getting a, an eleven pm email from their boss and feeling like they were obligated to respond, and it fell down even despite the best intentions. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. We've got to walk our talk and show mm-hmm. um, and lead the way in that space. So it's it's everyone changing habits. The big one I was going to add with leaders is also being role models about digitally disconnecting, sharing yeah. what they did when they unplugged because yeah. so many junior employees feel like they need to be constantly tethered to technology because no one is, you know, they, their leaders might be doing it but they're not sharing, you know. I, I spent the weekend offline, I went for a hike or this is what I did and we really need that to have a contagion effect as well. Yes. So agree. So can you then share with us your top three digital hacks <laughs> um, that could enable us to, you know, really break some of our bad habits? And I know you've probably got a gazillion of these, so it might be hard to choose three. But I love what you said before about working. Um, I think you said something about the simple strategies work if you do them well. Mm-hmm. I've probably yep. put that. No. <laughs> The basics work if you work the basics. We've all got digital dementia. <laughs> so don't worry if you can't remember things. None of us can. Um, true, our re- research tells us we, we literally are losing our memory-making capacity because we're offloading so much of what we can to technology. If I was to pick three, and this is like asking a parent to pick their favourite child very hard, um, <laughs> my three today would be not to nibble on your inbox. Um, so many of us spend our work day having a little bite of email and then going back to our proposal or our data analysis. And then when we find that hard and we're craving a quick fix of dopamine, they actually call it quick dopamine, we go back to our inbox and we nibble on that and then we go back and it's really ineffective. It has a, a you know some cognitive costs of doing that because we are task switching all the time. And so it's really detrimental. So research actually tells us, people have studied this, and the ideal number of times to check your emails is somewhere between two to four times a day. Mm. Um, So structuring in, and again, I encourage people to do this at optimal times. If you are, I I get people to identify their chronotype, so when their energy is at its peak. And if you are an early bird, the worst thing you can possibly do is get up and start your day in your inbox. That is when you should be doing your deep work. Um, If you are an owl, so your energy fires on all cylinders at night, then maybe waking up and checking your inbox is the best thing because that's not your peak window for for getting deep work done. Mm. But you would be very well uh, ill-placed to be doing your emails late at night, if that makes sense. So certainly not nibbling on our inbox. The second strategy is to control your notifications. And many of us have controlled what comes on our phone or our personal devices, What we haven't started to control is what's coming in now because we've got distributed teams on our professional platforms. Mm. So I'm seeing people that are getting Teams notifications on a range of devices simultaneously. They're getting email reminders. So my three rules with with notifications, um, disable any non-essential. Like you really don't need to know what your ex-employee, ex-colleague is now doing at another job. You know, turn it off. You don't need to know what your sister-in-law ate for breakfast. Turn those non-essential ones off. Yeah. 
with your essential ones, you should now batch or bundle them to come to you. And you can do this so easily at a time that is convenient. So for me, WhatsApp drives me crazy. So I have elected to have WhatsApp notifications come through once a day. And I choose that at eight o'clock at night when most of my work has been done and I can deal with those. Mm. So you can now choose what time of the day you want them. And the third notification trick is to set up what we call VIP notifications. So that important colleague that you're working on a project with, a client who you do want to be responsive to, they can get through on the VIP notification list, but everyone else gets their notifications part of that bundle or that batch time. So we've talked about not nibbling your inbox, um, batching and and bundling your notifications. And the third one, and we touched on this before, is when you do want to get focused work done or you want to be present with another person, put your phone where you can't see it and switched off. Yeah, awesome. I love those. And they're simple and that you can implement them immediately. I love that concept of nibbling on your inbox. I mean, I must say, I do find myself doing that, particularly if I'm struggling with something. It's like, oh, it's just a distraction procrastination strategy, I think. It is. And it's our brain craving a quick hit of dopamine. Mm. And we have associated our inbox somewhere along the line. We got praise for a good job or we got news of a promotion or we got a new client inquiry. And so we've associated our inboxes with some sort of state of, of, of pleasure. And so when we hit the stuck point, you know, when you are at a really critical thinking moment in the proposal you're writing or you're doing some complex data analysis, and your brain is depleted, you want a quick hit of dopamine. So we go there. We might pick up social media. Um, we might check a news site. It's that quick dopamine that we're really craving in those situations. Yes, absolutely. Oh, thank you for sharing those. They're extremely helpful. Now, I could, like, keep going and ask you a gazillion questions <laughs> here, but I'm very mindful of your time. So... What's the best way for people to get in contact with you so that they can, you know, educate their teams, they can educate themselves? Look, the irony isn't lost on me. I do have digital platforms um, and (laughs) I do share hopefully bite-sized bits of information on social media. Um, Encouraging, I know that's where people are, (laughs) but encouraging them to cultivate healthy digital habits. So I'm on um, LinkedIn, um, Instagram and Facebook, and there's lots of information on my website as well about some simple strategies that people can put in place to tame their tech habits. Just amazing resources on your website and also you know your bite-sized bits of information that's easily digestible on your social yeah. so I absolutely encourage people to connect and Chrissy it's been just amazing talking to you and you are just the fountain of knowledge in this space oh, thank you Zoe. <laughs> so on a final note if you encourage our listeners to take one thing away from our chat today what do you think that would be My one thing is that you can and you need to tame technology so Mm. that you're not a slave to the screen. My biggest fear um, is that we are going, many of us are going to reach the end of our life and realise just how much wasted time we spent on our digital devices and the two non-renewable resources we have in our life that technology can evaporate, it can rob us of, are our time and our attention. And These devices have become so prevalent that they so easily rob us of our time and our attention. So I want us to to take back the power and be in control of the technology 
um, not be that slave to the screen. A mother shared this with me recently and, my goodness, it had a profound impact on me. Um, She said she came home, picked her daughter up from work one day and her daughter asked her how much she earned per hour. And the mum said, look, I earn a salary. I'll, I'll do some calculations and I'll get back to you. And as she was tucking her daughter into bed that night, she said, look, sweetie, I worked out what my hourly rate is. This is what it is. Why do you ask? And her daughter turned and said to her mum, because I'd like to buy an hour of your time without your phone. Ouch. Our kids are seeing this and we never get that time back. And I'm not suggesting that we, you know, need to abstain from using technology. We should never use it around kids or family members. That's completely unrealistic advice. We are missing out on, you know, micro moments um, with our important people because we are just so tethered to it. So, yeah, that's my strong encouragement that we build healthy habits so we're not that slave to the screen. Yeah, absolutely. And a really powerful note to end on. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. And I hope that you have gained some great ideas and feel inspired to get out there and make what you do count for your leadership, your business, and your life. Please do leave a review for this podcast and please share it with your network. Send any feedback or suggestions for future guests by emailing me, julie at juliehide.com.au. For now, let's get out there and make it count.